It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan. W. Clement Stone once said, Truth will always be truth regardless of lack of understanding, disbelief, or ignorance. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. Joining me as always is Jonathan, my co-host for more than two decades. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. All right, so Jonathan, what is our subject for today's podcast? Well, this is part five of our series, Has the Bible Been Mistranslated and Misunderstood? And our theme text is found in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. All scripture is inspired of God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Okay, has the Bible been mistranslated and misunderstood? Part five coming up in today's podcast. If so many of us believe in God, uh, believe the Bible is God's Word, then why don't the vast majority of us understand God? Turns out there are some very pivotal translation issues that surround God and His name. We're going to deal with these in about 20 minutes, and the answers might be a little bit surprising. Christians look forward to the second coming of Christ, but what if they're anticipating the wrong things? Yep, mistranslations hide the truth here too. Find out how in about 45 minutes. But first, let's get some context in place and then begin with the simple concept of love. Only it's not as simple as you might think because it's another translation issue, okay? Words mean things. You've all heard that statement before. It's a simple and powerful truism that certainly applies to our study of God's Word. In our mistranslation podcast series, we've endeavored to establish how much a text of Scripture can be changed by the mistranslation or misunderstanding of a single word. Every word of inspired Scripture can and should be scrutinized for its meaning. Mistranslations occur sometimes by accident, sometimes because of preconceived belief, and sometimes to deliberately deceive. Confusion is the foundation of deception. Satan likes nothing better than planting seeds of error and seeing them called truth. But by God's grace, we are blessed with all the needed tools to examine and clarify nearly all questions of mistranslation and misunderstanding. Of course, the Holy Spirit works with us in our continual search for the truth. And of course, Jonathan, David Stein works us with us as well in this continual search. David, welcome back for Mistranslations Part 5. Oh, this has been a lovely experience. Glad to be here this, this evening. Well, it's really, really good to have you, and we're going to just jump right in, David, with picking up where we left off. We've gone through mistranslations all kinds of different ways. Today, we're going to start with another fascinating example of a single English word translated from several different Greek words. The word is love. Now, the Greek language has more than one word for love, which adds depth and shades of meaning to Scripture. English word, though, we use that one word, and we miss a lot. So, David, what about the Greek language and this word for love? Well, there's a general principle here that when you have different cultures, certain things are more important in some cultures, 
And so they have multiple different words for it. Greek was an example of that. To them, the, the idea, the concept of love uh, was was something more than what we have in English. So they had four different words for them. The four words are agape, filio, storge, and eros. Now, of those four, only the first three occur in Scripture. The last word, eros, and I'm sure most of our listeners would, would see the English translation of that, having to do with the love between a husband and wife, that intimacy there. This does not appear in Scripture. So we'll take each of the other three and define their differences with scriptural examples. Okay, so we're going to look at three different Greek words that are all translated love uh, in, in, in the King James Version of the Bible. So let's start with the first word. It's, it's agape, and we're going to look at God's love, God's Greek word agape. Jonathan, let's go to John 3.15. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son— that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So, David, God so loved the world, what's the word for love here? Well, this is such a familiar scripture to Christians, and the Greek word for love here is agape. It's Strong's number 25, starting with an A, of course, very early in the list, and it occurs 142 times in the New Testament. Now, when we study this word, if we have a proper understanding of it, at least from the, the standpoint of Scripture, we see agape as the highest form of love as it is based upon principle, not emotion or passion. Now, emotion can be part of agape. We shouldn't think of it as emotional list. But the idea here is that it's not the foundation of God's love. This love is based upon what is eternally right and good and is intellectually based. In other words, it's a love of understanding of the mind. It is a godly love in that it will be expressed even if our feelings dictate otherwise. It's a love that we can have when we don't feel like loving. The human race has been alienated by God, or from God by sin, and yet he has such love for his creation that he permitted the excruciating death of his son in order to redeem him. This is agape love. This is the love we must have for him and for each other. So, David, this kind form of love is like giving without expecting anything in return. It's like it's selfless. You just want to give because of so much love in your heart. That's a good way of putting it, John, Jonathan. And again, the idea of it being based upon principle uh, means that it's going to be in many ways stronger than emotional-based uh, forms of love. Not that there's anything wrong with them, but it's the type of love that will persevere uh, and uh, continue through very difficult situations. And based on principle, what that means is it's stable. Emotional love can be unstable, but love based on principle is very stable, and that's really God is love. God is that stable, giving love. Now, we're supposed to have that same kind of love for others. Our agape, our love toward God, is expressed in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven to 39. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, David, so the word love here is the same word agape. You shall love the Lord your God. Yeah, this is the, good, this is the form of love that God is encouraging. In fact, commanding. This is taken from the Old Testament law. It, it is a command that we are to have that type of uh, love for God. And that in itself tells you that it's not emotionally based. You can't command emotions, but you can command principle. And what Jehovah is saying to the Israelites when he first said that, and of course Jesus brings it up to date, 
is that, you know, I know that you're on earth and I know I'm up here. I know that I'm not understandable to you, but I want you to love me. And with that love, we, we accept that we don't understand him and we don't worry about it. We love him because he knows he has the very best interests uh, for us to have. And we will trust him thoroughly. And taking one step further, since this is the love God has for us, it's the love he commands us to have for him. It is also, as Jesus said here, the love we are to have for our neighbor. Okay, and we're going to get into that, uh, well, into a form of that in a moment. But again, our love for God must be based on the principles of God and his character, being the Almighty One. So we've got God's agape, God's love, our agape, our love toward God. What about our love, our agape toward others besides our neighbors? Matthew 5.44, Jonathan. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Again, David, love based on principle here, right? That's right. You know, when Jesus said this, this had to be a stunner. How do you love an enemy? Remember the the circumstances there. Their enemy was the Romans. This was a uh, world-conquering empire that were brutal in many cases. Uh, How do you love them? Now, of course, the answer is that because Jesus died for them as he died for us, we have to love all those that Jesus died uh, for uh, for us. But all of our neighbors uh, are creations of God, and God has something in mind for all of them. And so we can love our enemies by thinking of them as God thinks of them, not as what they are today, but as what they will be after the kingdom will cause the fruits of uh, the uh, spirit and the uh, qualifications of God to come out. And now those that were enemies in this life will be our friends uh, and they will probably love us in the next life. Interesting. Again, love based on principle. For more on loving your enemies, listen to episode 1015 titled Condemned to Death, How Did Jesus Love His Enemies? Go to ChristianQuestions.com. Okay, so we've talked about agape love. While agape love is love like that of God, obviously, the Greek language shows us several other kinds or other aspects of love. This next Greek word is philio. So let's look at God's love or God's philio, and that's expressed in John 5.20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him great works than these so that you will marvel. David God, the Father, Filio, the Son. What does that mean? Well, this is very interesting. Remember, we saw in, in, in John 3.16, God agape the world. He had right. love for the whole world. Uh, he certainly is agape for his Son, but here he says he Filio, his Son. This word, the second word, is Strong's 53.68, and it carries the idea of emotional, affectionate love. Filio emphasizes the affection, emotion, the fondness one person has for another. It is a love centered in the heart. It's used 25 times in scriptures and has some interesting connections to other words. But here, the Heavenly Father has this deep heart affection for his son. And again, we still use that one word love for both of these things. And you see there's a huge difference here. So now let's expand it. Our love or our filio, that affection toward others. Jonathan, here's a really short scripture, Hebrews 13.1 that expresses it. Let love of the brethren continue. Okay, so that's affection then, David, right? Well, this is a very interesting combination of words. It certainly has filio. You see love there. That's filio love. The Greek word for brethren is adelphos. Now, if you put filio and adelphos together, you get Philadelphia. There's something yep. of interest. That's what Philadelphia means. 
love of the brethren. And uh, this is Strong's 5360. The filial love we should feel for each other is an emotional affection. It ought to be deep and strong enough to lay our lives down for one another. Okay, so we've got this filial love toward one another, this affection. Jesus also had great expression of filial love, this, this affection. And, and this is a very sensitive scripture, John 11, uh, verses 35 and 36. Jesus wept, so the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. So when it says, see how he loved him, it's see how he filio him, right? Indeed. You know, this is uh, this whole scene here really tugs at the heartstrings. Jesus was there uh, to uh, witness the, actually, the, the uh, past death of Lazarus. You remember that he had heard that Lazarus was sick. But as he said, I'm not going to go yet because there's something that God's going to do. Jesus, number one, knew that Lazarus was going to die. He knew he was going to raise him from the dead. And so with those two things in mind, you would have thought, well, he could, he could be very unemotional and say, oh, this will just bring him back. But Jesus' love was such. He was so touched by the grieving that was going on and his own love for them that uh, even those around him noticed that he wept. So this was something very unusual, but it shows the depth that that's possible with filio. Okay, so you've got—you said we're going to describe three Greek words. Agape was the first. That's that benevolent love based on principle. Filio is that second. It's that love based on affection. What's the last Greek word for love that's mentioned in Scripture? The last word is storge. Now, this word by itself does not appear in Scripture, but we have some other forms of it. Storgi loves the or describes the love between family members, like between parents and children, between siblings, others considered to be part of that nuclear family. It is a strong love, very protective and very loyal. Okay, and uh, you said we don't have that specific word in Scripture, but we have the absence of that specific word in Scripture. <laughs> so let's take a look at that, Jonathan. Uh, Storgi, the absence of that is reflected in Romans one thirty one. Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Dave? The uh, word for unloving here is astorgos. Now, when you put an A in front of a word uh, in Greek, it makes it in the negative. Mm -hmm. So that's why he says unloving. Storgi is loving. Astorgi is unloving. This is Strong 794. It simply means no love. And a few translations have it without natural affection. It describes a condition of heart where the natural love, the natural storgy love, has left those given over to sin. Uh, it's also used in Second Timothy three three. Okay, so we've got an example of you know the absence of that, meaning that it's supposed to be there, but uh, it's 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 not shown. Now, apparently, in Romans twelve ten, there's another variation of this word storgy. So, Jonathan, let's go to that scripture. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. All right, so David, there's be devoted, and I presume that that's the word we're talking about, this uh, variation of storge, and then it talks about brotherly love afterwards. So just put this all together. Yeah, being reading this in Greek, uh, it is a stunning uh, of how much love Paul includes in this. Now, that, uh, that translation, be devoted to one another, is again another compound word. Remember we saw... Philo and Adelphus, early Philadelphia. Right. Now we've got Philostorgos. We've got love, love. Two hmm. types of love. 
It's a compound word, Strong's 5387. And we could almost translate it, love, love. And Paul is saying that. He's saying, brethren, love, love one another in brotherly love. Now we've got Philadelphia here too. So we've got two instances of, uh, of Philo, one instance of Storgi and one instance of Adelphos. This has got to be one of the strongest verses of love in the scripture, the way Paul piles on the concept of love. And we would miss this if it weren't being able to go back to the Greek and then see the Greek words for love here used. So, you know, that's an interesting concept because oftentimes when we think of love of the brother and it's like, uh, you know, make room for them, move over and give them a seat at church or something. This is way, way bigger than that. So we can see that these three Greek words give us a much stronger sense of what the word love should mean in so many different ways. So, so David, just let's wrap this up. Give us a summary of love in the Bible, especially specifically the New Testament with these three words. Okay, the, uh, number one, the highest form of love is agape. We need this love because following the footsteps of Jesus is not always easy, but it needs to be done. And recognizing principled love, which is what agape lives, will enable us to bear up under those circumstances. Number two, we need filial love because of the emotional ties of affection give us strength and resolve. It frees us to share our deepest thoughts and feelings with our brethren. And number four, we need Storgi to remind us that we're part of a family with blessings and responsibility toward others. Okay, all of that out of the English word love. So there's so, so much more to it. The Bible is so much more profound when we see the full meaning of words blossom before us. Don't you love it? What about the words used to describe God? What can we learn from digging into their meanings? While understanding love broadens our appreciation of God's word, understanding the name and descriptions of God broaden our reverence for him directly. We might assume the word God is self-explanatory. Examining the multiple ways in which this word God is used paints a much broader picture. And that seems to be the theme here, David, is there's always a, a broader picture when we decide to go beneath the surface and try to understand what's really there. So the word God, let's focus on that now. Well, you think that uh, the word God would be a very simple thing and uh, its use is very straightforward. Actually, the scope of the meaning of God in the Hebrew Scriptures is much larger. Now, the word for God is a translation from the Hebrew term Elohim. You might hear it pronounced Elohim. Elohim, I think, is closer to the right uh, Hebrew pronunciation. It's Strong's 430. And this is very interesting. Though we translate the word as the singular God, in the Hebrew, it is actually plural. Well, why would it be plural? Well, this is actually a grammatical tribute to the majesty of Jehovah God. Okay, and we're going to figure out how that works. How is this a tribute to the majesty of God? So, Jonathan, we have a couple of references. First, let's go to the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology, just to get a sense of Elohim. Elohim, though plural in form, is seldom used in the Old Testament as such, that is, God's. Even a single heathen god can be designated with the plural Elohim. In Israel, the plural is understood as the plural of fullness. God is the God who really, and in the fullest sense of the word, is God. So, David, before we go to the next commentary, just rephrase what Jonathan just 
gave us from the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology. Well, the plural use of it uh, in, in Scripture just emphasizes the greatness of God. Uh, we would Normally, we would translate this God's, but in this case, the idea has implicit with it the majesty of God, the fullness of God, the godship of God, the deity of God, uh, the most high, uh, uh, most highness, maybe I should say it that way, <laughs> of God. Uh, and it's all implicit in this word. Again, something that we would not pick up in English but starts to come out as we look at these tools that uh, help us to understand it. Okay, and Jonathan, Hastings' Dictionary of the Bible confirms this. It is a plural of majesty, such as is common in Hebrew, or else it denotes the fullness of God. Okay, so we're talking about this plural of majesty, the fullness of God, the, the, the majestic plural. We don't use that anymore. It's all essentially but died out in English. It was last most famously used, and this is an interesting side note, used by Queen Victoria, who, when not amused, would say, we are not amused. <laughs> she referred to herself as we because she was the sovereign. Monarchs refer to themselves in the majestic plural because as figureheads, they re represented the entire nation that they reigned over. So, so, David, we have the example of the plural use of this word with individuals actually in the English language all over the place, but it's just old. Yeah, that's, it's interesting that we do have examples of it in English, and uh, not knowing a whole lot of other languages, I don't know if they did either. But it shows that there is a connection uh, with this idea of majesty, this, the use of the plurality, since we have this example in our own language. Okay, so now let's get into the, the, the plural majesty a little bit more technically from a scriptural perspective. Okay, well, when speaking about the single God, translated as God, not gods, even though it's the plural, uh, when writing about a group of gods in the scripture, the same word, the same word now, is translated gods. So Elohim can be God when it's used in reference to the God, and it can be gods when it's used in reference to, for example, false gods. Now, how do you know when to do it? Well, I was just going to ask you, okay, how can you tell the difference? <laughs> Go ahead. Well, the, the grammatical indicator is in the verb. When you see a single verb, then God is the correct pronunciation. Plural word, gods, is the correct pronunciation. So we have the clues that enable us to be pretty sure about whether it should be God or gods. Okay. All right. So when we look at the way Scripture is translated, you can see that you've got, if you've got the single verb, it's talking about the God, you know, just in, in one sense versus more. Okay, go ahead. Yes. Yeah, just as an example, you know, we, in Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you go to the Hebrew there, you say, uh, in the beginning, he created, that is a singular verb, Elohim, of plural noun. So there's a specific example right gotcha. in Genesis 1-1 of the plural noun being used as a single or being used with a single verb. Again, okay. this instance is repeated throughout Scripture, so we can feel fairly confident in what the translation should be. Okay, so, and, and folks, when you look at the Seeker Rewind, you're going to see this actually written out in front of you because it can be a little confusing trying to just talk about it with, with the words here. So you, you want to get the uh, Seeker Rewind, um, the show notes, to be able to understand this. So the word then magnifies God with this, quote, plural of majesty. Does it refer only to God? God Almighty, whenever it's used. 
Well, again, we, we find that the scope of this word Elohim is much larger than that, very broad usage. Uh, here's a few examples. Moses as Elohim in Exodus 7.1. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. So, David, you're saying this word, when God says to Moses, I make you as God, that word is Elohim. It is, indeed. And wow. it sort of suggests that the power uh, and uh, authority that Jehovah God is investing in Moses to be the deliverer's people and to stand before Pharaoh. That's amazing. And what an incredible compliment and shot of confidence to Moses to say to Moses, I'm giving you all of my power and authority before Pharaoh. Yeah. And, and Rick, do you notice here? Well, you don't notice, but if you look in the <laughs> Hebrew, here's another example. Moses is only one person, yes. but the plural form is still used. Okay. All right. There you go. So, and that, that, that's really, that's fascinating uh, to just, it gives you a sense. And so Moses is described as God Elohim to Pharaoh. That's interesting. And again, a very high, high confidence of Jehovah God to, to Moses. On the contrary now, the golden calf, remember the golden calf, that's also called Elohim as well. Jonathan, let's go to Exodus 32 verse 4. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a great uh, gra graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Ouch. This is your Elohim. Really? Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, just showing the scope of the word. We have a Elohim used here to designate something other than Almighty God. In fact, in this case, the singular God makes sense. It was only one golden calf. Some translations, though, if you, it'll say God's there, hmm. but there was only one calf. So you can see that even in the minds of some of the translators there, there was a little bit of confusion on it. So at this point, we've seen that Elohim can refer to the God, Almighty God. It can refer to a man, in the case of Moses, and it can refer to uh, a golden calf, a false god, all of the same word, but designating different usages. Okay, so you, it, it's this is something that we, we don't normally think about. When you think of the word for God, you think, okay, it's all, always God, but not so. And there are several usages that you've laid out here, and there's actually a couple more that we're going to touch on because it gives you an expansiveness of understanding. Now, we're going through kind of a description of God here. In the next segment, we're going to talk about the name of God. So hang on and, and stay with us for that. But Jonathan, let's go now to another example of Elohim being used in the Old Testament, and this is in relation to an angel. This is Judges 13, 22. So Manoah said to his wife, We will surely die, for we have seen God. And again, David, they have seen God. That word is Elohim. What, what's the context? What's happening here in this particular account? Well, the context here is that they had a visit from an angel, and they didn't recognize him as an angel right away. But then when they uh, wanted to offer him uh, something to eat, the angel consumed that sacrifice and then went up, and they realized, my goodness, we have seen a, a, a spirit here. And they called it God, Elohim. So here is a another example of a fourth usage of Elohim as represented in an angel. Okay, and again, they use that word to describe an angel because of the the might and the majesty, I would presume, that, that they were presented with, but they didn't recognize it first. 
Yeah, the, the, what they saw was definitely out of everyday uh, experience. I mean, a supernatural fire from God, uh, uh, completely consuming a sacrifice, and then the man going up in the flame. That's how it's described there. Uh, my goodness, they they uh, they were afraid. That's why he said, "We surely die. We we've, we've seen something we shouldn't have seen." They, they knew all the scriptures about how uh, how difficult it could be if you see God. Uh, well, they didn't see the God. They saw God's representative in an angel. But it was described with that exact same word, Elohim. Exactly. Okay. Our final example of this is is I think actually of all of these is. Well, maybe not the most fascinating, but one of the most. And this is in terms of judges as Elohim. So, Jonathan, we're going to go to Exodus 22, verse 9. For every breach of trust, whether it is for ox, for donkey, for sheep, for clothing, or for any lost thing about which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before the judges. He whom the judges condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. So, judges here is Elohim? Indeed it is. This is something that would be missed entirely, uh, except for looking at the Hebrew text. Now, why would it be Elohim here? Well, the judges are acting as a godly judge, and they they have the power to make a judgment, the power to make a decision, and so the use of Elohim here uh, is, uh, is not surprising at all. Now, there's other translations, though, that make it a little bit more clearer to show the God aspect of that. Okay, so Jonathan, let's go to Exodus 22.9, same verse, but this from the Young's literal translation. For every matter of transgression, for ox, for ass, for sheep, for raiment, for any lost thing of which is said that it is his, unto God cometh the matter of them both. He whom God doth condemn he repayeth double to his neighbor. So this sounds like, it sounds like you're bringing it right to God Almighty in, in this scripture. But in it, fact, it is the judges. It, yes, this is an accommodation that, that Young makes in his literal translation because he recognizes that the word Elohim is there. Uh, but clearly, when you have a judicial matter like that, it isn't God himself that's making the decision. And the way that he translates it is that they are looking at the principles and law of God and the consequences of breaking that law of God. And so they're emphasizing God here, even though it is the judges that are uh, making the decision. You know, this illustrates uh, an interesting problem in translation, that uh, sometimes we will say, well, we have to translate it exactly what, what's there. But sometimes for clarity, you have to translate it in what is meant. Now, there's a certain subjectivity of that, but like in this case, it's pretty clear that it's talking about men here that are doing the actual judging. And so the, the uh, number of scriptures that use judges uh, is quite right. We will say it's a mistranslation. It's actually a clarification of it. But understanding that Elohim is here helps us see the broad uh, use of this word, the scope of this word used in the Hebrew scriptures. It is. It is a, a tremendous scope here. So that there, there's a lot to learn and a lot that we shouldn't take for granted when we look at all of these things. really is fascinating. So recognizing the broad use of Elohim helps us see how God was referenced in real life back in ancient days. What about God's name? What is it and how do we understand it and respectfully use it? Okay, God's name occurs 6,823 times in the Hebrew Scriptures. 
yet nearly all English translations render it with Lord, capitals L-O-R-D. The King James Version translates it as Jehovah only seven times out of 6,823. Only seven. One of the great blind spots among English translations is the superstition against translating God's name. Okay, so we're, we're going to go a little further uh, into this, and David, you're going you're gonna to have to really help us out on this. In the Hebrew, God's name consists of four letters, Y-H-W-H, okay? These four letters are called, are what's called a, a, a how do you say that word, David? A tetra- tetragrammaton. That's exactly what I thought, tetragrammaton. <laughs> by, so these four letters are called a tetragrammaton by scholars, which simply means four letters. There are several reasons why this superstition became influential, but it must be admitted that not translating the divine name actually does injustice to the Bible. The name is there. It should be rendered as a name if we are faithfully reading Scripture. Hiding it with capitals L-O-R-D, the word Lord all in capitals, is confusing and actually um, uh, makes many texts incomprehensible. Rendering it as God's proper name clarifies many things. So, okay, David, we've got this, this tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, and you know, we, we've, we've heard, heard you mention Jehovah early, earlier. So let's use that as an example and get us kicked off on this. God's name as Jehovah, and Jonathan, it's Psalm 83.18 from the King James Version that they may know that thou alone, whose name is Jehovah, art the Most High over all the earth. What of this scripture, David? Well, this is one of the few times, the seven times, as as was mentioned previously in the King James, where it is rendered Jehovah. Uh, It is usually rendered Lord, but if they did that in this case, look how confusing it would be. Whose name is the Lord? Well, yeah. nobody's name is the Lord. It's got to be something else. And so they were forced by the construction of the Hebrew sentence to use the divine name there. And please note that this is the name that God has chosen for himself and given to man to identify him. Okay, so as far as humanity is concerned, this is the name because that's what God said. Um, and, you know, this scripture is important because that they may know that thou alone art the most high, Jehovah. So it says, unequivocally, you are above all, in all, and your name is Jehovah. Now, are there examples of where the use of Lord, all capitals, that we were talking about, where, where it's confusing? Indeed, there are. The 110th Psalm provides a, a perfect example. This is a prophetic reference to Jesus, but in most translations, the distinction between Jesus is muddled. Okay, so Jonathan, let's go to Psalm 110, verse 1. And this is the King James Version. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So who's speaking here? Who, who's the, the Lord said unto my Lord? Who, which mm. Lord is which? You can see that right, right. Uh, it's unclear. Now, contrast this same verse with a better translation. And that's American Standard Version. Jehovah saith unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So the name makes all the difference. It makes it flow, and it gives you a sense of who's who without having to scratch your head even once. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the whole prophetic import of this would be lost if we didn't see that it's Jehovah speaking to someone, inviting him to sit at his right hand. Well, who would that be? Well, undeniably, it's Jesus. So we have this prophecy in the 110th Psalm where Jehovah is speaking to his son and inviting him to sit at his right hand. Now, when we read the rest of the psalm, we see it referred into uh, the Christian scriptures so that there's no question here about the identification with Jesus. Okay, you know, and, and you'd think that one of the most important things in Scripture would be to get the name of God correct, and yet there's lots of other examples where it's not translated correctly. In the King James Version, there are examples where it's not translated correctly. We're just going to touch on a couple. Here's one. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 53. Jonathan, let's go with the King James Version here. For thou didst separate them from among all the people of the earth to be thine inheritance, as thou spakest by the hand of Moses thy servant, when thou broughtest our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. Okay, O Lord God. Oh, David, what, what, what are we looking at there? Well, this is interesting. We, we've already mentioned that the convention that the King James Version of the Bible uses when the Tetragrammaton appears in the Hebrew is all caps for the word Lord capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. But now we read this scripture, uh, Lord is in lower caps, and then God is in caps. Well, what does that mean? Well, it happens to mean the same thing here. This is an occurrence of the word Jehovah. Now, the King James translators uh, who just seem to, to obscure the, the name by this translation of Lord, here's another case where they couldn't do it. If they followed their normal convention, they would have said, Oh, Lord, Lord. Mm. Well, that doesn't make much sense either. But they were hesitant to, be, to say, O Lord Jehovah, which is the correct one, and so translated it, O Lord God. And uh, again, in doing that, they have uh, obfuscated the divine name there. Okay, and actually, if we go to that same scripture, 1 Kings 8.53, in the American Standard Version, it makes so much more sense. Jonathan, let's go there. For thou didst separate them from among all the peoples of the earth to be thine inheritance, as thou spakest by Moses thy servant, when thou broughtest our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord Jehovah. Well, there you go. That's so much more sensible. And it's so much more beautiful when you see the divine name used there. It is. You know, O Lord, that's, that's, that's his description. And O Lord Jehovah, that's his name. And so he just gives you the, the majesty right in front of you. It's just so important. Folks, just realize the importance. You know, we're talking about these mistranslations and, 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 and these errors, and they take away from the, 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 the ability to really truly exalt God as God. Now, this brings us to another point. Is Jehovah, you've used that word several times, is Jehovah, quote-unquote, the only correct rendering of God's name? You know, and that is a, a little bit of a controversial question uh, within uh, Christendom. While Jehovah is the most recognized rendering, many scholars say another pronunciation uh, is closer to the original. And they use the term Yahweh. So if you hear Yahweh, that is another alternative pronunciation of the, uh, the divine name. For example, in Rutherham's translation, and Rutherham is a very good translation, one of the best on, that are available, uh, he uses Yahweh uh, pretty consistently. The American Standard Version, Young's Literal Translation, Darby, among the few translations that use the word Jehovah. You know, and I might just go back just for a moment. In the Hebrew language, there are no vowels. 
it is a language, at least a written language, that uses only consonants. And so the vowels have to be supplied. Now, if you were brought up speaking it, you know what vowels uh, should uh, be used there. But there is no one from the time before Christ that's alive today that can tell us what the precisely correct uh, pronunciation is. So this is left somewhat uh, uh, ambiguous and uncertain. Uh, again, most scholars, uh, at, the, at the, when I say scholars, I'm talking about the ivory tower scholars, they prefer Yahweh. But as we've already mentioned, Jeho- Jehovah is by far the most commonly used. Okay, so which, which is correct? <laughs> you know, you're, you're saying, it, okay. Yeah, the, the, they're both correct. We have no objection to uh, anyone using one or another. Uh, again, it's very important to recognize that pronunciation uh, isn't the same as, uh, as inspiration. Let's take an example that everyone uses, everyone that speaks English. You use the name of God's son, Jesus. Mm-hmm. If I told you, uh, Rick, that's not the right pronunciation. It should be Yeshua or Yehoshua, something along those lines. So that's true. Uh, in in uh, the original languages, it was uh, 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 Jesus, for example, in Spain, in Spanish, is another variation of that. So what I'm trying to make the point here is that pronunciation isn't a vital part of our worship. We can't envision God getting upset to say, oh, you didn't pronounce my name right. You know, I go to I go to France and they say David. They don't say David. I don't get upset about it. Hmm. These are just pronunciations, so they are not fundamental principles. What's important is to know that God has a name and for you to choose a a pronunciation with which you can worship your God with it. Makes sense. So Dave, David, I'm curious, uh, which do you prefer personally, Jehovah or Yahweh? Well, my personal preference, Jonathan, is Jehovah for two reasons. Number one, we already mentioned that it is the most recognizable. That's not to say that within Christian circles, Yahweh wouldn't be recognized, but outside of Christian circles, I don't think it would be recognized, whereas Jehovah would be. So when we speak, we want to communicate in a way where we where we get the idea across. And Jehovah has been used for centuries. It is uh, uh, very, very common. Uh, it is seen in, in, in writings going, going back, again, many centuries. So that's the first reason that I use it. The second reason is emotional. I have learned the name of God being Jehovah from the time I was pretty young, just like I learned the name of Jesus. I gave that an example a moment ago. And if I said to you, Jonathan, well, would you prefer to use Jesus or, or Yeshua? Well, you would probably say Jesus simply because there's an emotional comfort with it. It's the name I've been using, yeah, the name we've been using for such a long time. So those are my two personal reasons why uh, I prefer Jehovah as uh, as the word or pronunciation that I use. You know, and and that's that's important. And and the the point you made about it's important to realize. Okay, you know, if we're not pronouncing it perfectly, God gets it. It's not like we're mispronouncing it to, to, to cast an insult. We're doing the best that we can. So, but, you know, you had mentioned earlier, David, that, you know, there, there was this, this movement in, amongst translators to, to not use the name of, uh, of Jehovah. Should we be considering, should we be using the divine name, or should we say, you know what, maybe we, we should avoid it as well? Right. Well, remember that the non-use of it went back to the uh, the superstition, which really went back to the Jews. They felt that the name was so holy that uh, to use it would be in some way to take it in vain. So 
how do you make sure you don't don't take God's name in vain? Well, don't use it ever. That was kind of the rationale among the Jews, and that spread uh, within the uh, English-speaking as well as it came about. Uh, also, there was other reasons, too, because it does obfuscate just who Jehovah is and his relationship uh, with Jesus. Now, speaking of Jesus, Jesus was one who used the name. It was very important for him to use his name. Uh, notice this in John chapter 17, verse 26. And I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. Notice how clear it is. Jesus says, I have made your name known. Yeah. Well, you don't make it known by not using it. And he says, I will make it known. If that was Jesus' attitude regarding the divine name, it should also be our attitude, whatever pronunciation we choose to use. Okay, well, that kind of settles it, doesn't it? When you have a, a when you have Jesus saying it and putting it in order, it makes it a whole lot easier to deal with. So, look, the divine name is important, and it's praiseworthy. To use it imperfectly but reverently is to truly give honor to God. What about mistranslations relating to prophecy? Are there any corrections that would change our expectations? Christianity has been looking with great anticipation for the second coming of Jesus since the first century. The Bible has a lot to say about his return. As you might have guessed, one key word used by both Jesus and his disciples regarding his second coming, yep, has been mistranslated. So what's the word? Let's take a look, David. We're going to start by looking at the Jesus testimony, his own testimony about his return, and that's in Matthew 24, and, and most Christians understand. You go look at Matthew 24, and it's about the return of Jesus. So Jonathan, Matthew 24, verse 3, and then David, you take it from there. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. All right, David, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> well, just a quick note here. Uh, we looked at this uh, at this text uh, last week in a previous episode regarding the end of the world. Remember, right, we right, found right. that that was a, a mistranslation right away. The end of an age is talking about a period of time, not the wiping away of the uh, of the uh, world. But here we want to focus on the word coming. The Greek word here is parousia. Strong's 3952. Uh, it's also pronounced parousia, so if you hear it either way, it, it's uh, just variations on pronunciation. Now, the word does not mean coming. It means presence. We might say arrival and subsequent presence, and the emphasis on the presence being there. In fact, you go back to the very um, core meaning of the Greek term. It means a being there. That's what it's all about. It's used 24 times in the New Testament. Now, we can verify that this is so by looking at just a couple more biblical examples where this word parousia is used. Okay, so the first of the two examples that we'll use for, for today's purposes is 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10. But, for they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. His personal parousia. That's right. <laughs> How clearly could you see? His presence there. So, this is Paul's presence was there. Now, they said that his presence was unimpressive. 
which means that they were looking at him. In fact, they were looking at his flesh rather than uh, the, what he had to say. And I'm sure that when he was there for a while, his presence became very impressive. But Paul uses the word parousia here, and there's no question about its meaning. Mm. In fact, he contrasted being present with the church with being absent from the church. Okay, so so, so, so they, they were wait they were they were saying that Paul was kind of short and um, what had a squeaky or a high pitched voice. Well, that's no, interesting. Wait a minute, Jonathan. <laughs> I've been described like that many times. <laughs> okay, and what are we trying to say? <laughs> you know, it is interesting that Paul includes this. I mean, that means he heard it. Um, I don't think that he was uh, offended by it. I mean, he, evidently the uh, the description that we have of Paul, the physical description, is that he was an unimpressive human being. But that's not what God uses in any of his servants. It's not what you look like, you know, how strong you are or how handsome you are, or how beautiful you are. It's what God can do in, in blessing others through you. And Paul was used mightily that way. Yes, he was. Squeaky voice or not, brother. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so that's one example of the word that was used in Matthew 24, 3, what will be the sign of your coming, actually means presence, and in 2 Corinthians 10, 10, it was obvious his personal presence is unimpressive. It couldn't be his personal coming, it's his personal presence. Same thing comes up in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 6 and 7, and this is from Young's literal translation. But he who is conforting the case down, I'm sorry, but he who was comforting the cast down, God, he did comfort us in the presence of Titus, and not only in his presence, but also in the comfort with which he was comforted over you. It is so clear that that this has to be presence. Uh, Titus wasn't comforted by his coming. I mean, he might have been encouraged by it, but not comforted by it. But it was by his presence that the comfort was being uh, afforded. And there's plenty of other examples we can use. We just chose two for the uh, example of, to to put it on the table time-wise. So, David, Vine's expository dictionary on this word parousia um, gives a lot of of explanation here. Can you kind of sum up some of what's there? And we're going to put all of it in the the CQ Rewind show notes. Yeah, once again, Vine's is is very clear on this point. And again, I should say, as as we said in some of the previous uh, segments, that uh, Vines is not always the most reliable expert, but in this case, uh, he defines presence as para, which is the prefix there, with an usia being. With being. It means a being with. That's what the word literally means. And it denotes, uh, Vines tells us, both an arrival and a consequent presence with. That's so important. He gives a couple of examples in Greek writing as well. And he goes on a little bit further and says that the, the sense of presence uh, in contrast to aparesia. Remember, remember a storgi going back a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Aparesia, not present, uh, is so forceful that you cannot escape this being a word that means coming. So uh, Vines is, uh, is very consistent on this and confirms uh, our understanding of it. Okay, uh, so the word, actually you said means coming, you meant means, means presence um, in, in the... Uh, sense of being there and not on the way there. Yes. Yeah. You know, I remember years ago that we had a, a Greek brother uh, that was a speaker in the New York City area. Uh, and uh, he told us a story that 
when a teacher would come into a room in a Greek school, they would read the roster. Now, you remember when they, they would say, uh, uh, they'd say, Rick Sarasi, and Rick would say, present, here. here. Yeah. Well, guess what the children said? Perusia. Oh, interesting. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> you know, so it's a very, very simple, straightforward thing. So the evidence... The evidence about the word makes it very clear. Biblical evidence and external evidence makes it very clear that parousia or parousia is not just about arrival, but the em- emphasizes the presence after arriving. So what does this mean regarding the second presence of Jesus? Well, this is where it starts to get very interesting because Jesus is being asked a question here that re- about what's coming in the future. So we're talking about a prophetic usage. And so when he says, what's the sign of your presence, that has a different overtone and a different implication than sign of the presence. Yeah, yeah, you're right, very much so. So Jonathan, let's go back to Matthew 24, 3. This time, read it from Young's literal translation. We already read it from New American Standard. Now it's Young's literal translation. And when he is sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came near to him and saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what is the sign of thy presence end of the full end of this age? Wow. Okay. It it does give you a different feel. Indeed. Just think about it for a minute. What thoughts come to mind when we see sign of thy presence? You know, that's a that's a that's a big thing because when you're saying sign of thy presence, that means what everybody is looking forward to to say, okay, that means there's a there's an arrival imminent. It means that no, 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 the arrival is already happened. It changes everything. It, it does indeed. You, you know, we can we can see two things that come to mind from this. Number one, when when the disciples ask about a sign it suggests a presence that can't be perceived in other ways. Okay, okay, pause there for a second. So they're asking for a sign because you're saying the presence is not um, obvious, but it's still present. Yeah, the the sign is an indicator of the presence, not literally seeing with one's eye. Okay. Now, the second thing, uh, and, and this is, I think, probably the most important thing. We've already established that parousia means a presence, and so it's not emphasizing the arrival, which is an event, but rather parousia emphasizes a period of time during which these requested signs appear. So not an event, but rather a time of of, uh, some duration. Okay, so going back to that Greek schoolhouse, when you say here, parousia, you're there for the class. It's not that you're there for the moment, but you're there for the duration. And they were saying you get that same kind of thought here. So the second presence of Jesus, like you just said, is more, much more than an event. It, of course, begins with his arrival, but the emphasis is one that takes place afterward during the presence. That's, what, that's what we're, where we are now. So Exactly. Okay, so what are further descriptions of this period which is prophesied in Scripture? Because now we want to look at the second, quote, coming as the second, quote, presence and as not a, a moment, but a period of time. So, Jonathan, let's go to a few scriptures here. Uh, Matthew 24, 37, from Young's literal translation. And as the days of Noah 
so shall be also the presence of the Son of Man. Okay. So now, again, we, we've made the statement that the presence represents a period of time. Well, here, this expression nails it. This is a very powerful uh, comparison, almost mathematical. It parallels the days of Noah, which undeniably are a period of time, mm -hmm. with the presence of the Son of Man. They are both periods of time during which a lot of things happen. So the signs of Jesus' return and subsequent presence will indicate that he is here. This is different from a sign of his coming. Yeah. In this case, latter case, the sign indicated that he was near in time. With presence, sign shows his nearness in space. And to understand a little bit more, let's read a few more verses from the same context. All right, so Jonathan, uh, Matthew 24, now 38 and 39 from Young's Literal Translation. For as they were in the days before the flood, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, till the day Noah entered into the ark, and they did not know till the flood came and took all away, so shall be also the presence of the Son of Man. You see, here, here again, in the very next two verses, Jesus is doing the same comparison. Notice it, in the days before the flood. You can't escape that. That's a period of time. So also will be the presence of the Son of Man. So Jesus, twice here in these three verses, makes this comparison between the days of Noah and his presence. And it's so important because once we recognize that we are looking at a, a period of time, now we start to look for things that indicate that Jesus is there. And there's many, many scriptures that uh, start to describe what will happen during that period of time. Okay, and again, that gives a whole different look to everything. You can see you can see what a huge difference regarding prophecy and what we're looking for and what we're trying to assess. You can see the difference that the translation of one word has on understanding not only this prophecy, but several other things that we've talked about through this five-part series. So, so, David, just wrap up this piece with presence. Well, you can see the huge difference that uh, a translation of one word makes. Uh, incidentally, we're not suggesting something quite different here from the expectation of, of many uh, Christians, but the effect is in that one word. Yeah. So powerfully did one translator of the Bible understand the prophetic implications that he included a lengthy appendix in his translation to explain why he stuck with presence as the right translation at Perusia. And of course, we've mentioned that this translator before, his name is Joseph Bryant Rutherham of Rutherham's translation. The reading the appendix, I think, very beautifully lays out the meaning of the word, and it lays out why he was consistent throughout all of the New Testament in rendering Perusia as presence. And he recognized that uh, it would uh, it would be uh, trialsome or troublesome uh, for some Christians because of their prophetic viewpoint. But he says that the import of the word was so strong that uh, he had to set aside those objections in order to remain true uh, to the uh, translation of it. Okay, so the word parousia, what will be the sign of thy, quote, coming, now needs to be looked at if you want to be in accordance with Scripture, what will be the sign of thy presence and of the end of the, not world, but the end of the age? There's a whole big different way to understand the prophecy, and it's a fuller way to understand the prophecy. Okay, so David, we're, 
wrapping this up. We've we have we have taxed you now for five different sessions on mistranslations. This has been a five-part series. So looking back, just give us your 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 final sense of looking at the importance of the subject and some of your own observations. Well, Rick, you, you know, it, it could easily be said that we could add more um, segments to this because there are more examples of this. But remember that the name of this series has been has the Bible been mistranslated and misunderstood? The answer is yes, it has. Yeah. Yeah. And we've started looking at it. Now, for us uh, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, the Bible is our textbook. But the Bible that we have today has been passed down through many generations and through the hands of many writers and translators. There are no uh, uh, manuscripts in existence that were the original. I mean, I think it would be wonderful if we could hold in our hands uh, an actual letter that the Apostle Paul wrote, but uh, those have long since passed away. So uh, we have this descendancy. And uh, the the fact that it had to be translated into different languages just kind of opens up the door for errors to creep in, and they have. Fortunately, in this day and age, we have many tools that enable us as consecrated, dedicated Christians to go back and to check the original Greek and Hebrew. And we don't even have to be Greek and Hebrew uh, scholars. Yeah, we have, <laughs> yeah, we have dictionaries, uh, we have lexicons, we have commentaries. Uh, you know, in the, in the five uh, segments that we've done, how much have we talked about the Greek and Hebrew words in, in every episode? We've, we've parsed them, we've taken them apart, we've tried to see uh, what, is, what is there. In the process, we've discovered errors, we've discovered mistranslations. Some of those mistranslations are minor. They have no impact upon uh, our, our beliefs, our doctrinal system. Others have a big impact. One, the changing of one word uh, can make so many things. Uh, and we have to say that this, uh, a study like this helps us to clarify the doctrines that we believe, it clarifies uh, to us who God is, who Jehovah God is, who Jesus is. We see the implications of prophecy. So here's the, the bottom line. All of us want to praise our Heavenly Father and worship Him in spirit and truth. The spirit is our attitude toward what God has given us our, from our heart, our disposition. And the truth here is the written words. Both of those have to be brought into a line. And if we are really diligent, if we really want to please God and praise Him in all things, then we will go back to make absolutely sure that what we believe is firmly based upon Scripture that we can prove and verify for ourselves. Okay, David, thank you so much for giving us this viewpoint of Scripture uh, from a very technical perspective, from an analytical perspective, and from, most importantly, from a truth-seeking perspective. We love the Word of God. We love God's plan. We want to follow it in all of its fullness and in all of its accuracy and in all of its authenticity. David, thank you. Folks, listen. This is an important subject that we all need to really take seriously. So think about how to make yourself a better student of Scripture so that you can Find better ways to understand the truth of the Word of God because it changes everything. Think about it. Listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions in this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the Word 
uh, about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever, whatever your favorite podcast channel is, please rate us and review us. We'd greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, what does Moses the Deliverer teach us about Jesus? And the answer is more than you can imagine. We'll talk to you next week.